Tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. I'm Vanessa Levenstein, joined by Mzu Maketa. We're standing in for editor Cindy Moritz, and we are delighted to bring you another virtual box of books that have been selected and recommended by our various reviewers. We're also trying something new with our giveaway this month, so do listen closely for competition details and how to enter. We think we've made it really even easier to be a winner here on Book Choice. The legendary Mitch Albom visited South Africa last year. I was fortunate to chat to him about his latest very moving personal account of love and loss in Finding Chica. Penny Lorimer kept to the world of thrillers with When the Dead Come Calling by Helen Sedgwick and Our Fathers by Rebecca Waite. John Hanks flitted around Steve Woodall's Field Guide to Butterflies of South Africa. Beryl Eichenberger enjoyed Gail Schwimmer's Two Months as well as the Water and the Wine by Tamar Hodes, and both of these authors will be at the Jewish Literary Festival on 15th March. Philip Todras spoke to the hugely interesting artist and author Roger Ballin about his latest publication, The World According to Roger Ballin, by Roger Ballin and Colin Rhodes. And Leslie Beeks rounds it all off with two books she thinks preteens will love, The Girl Who Stole an Elephant by Niz- Nizrana Farouk and The Unteachables by Gordon Carmen. Let's get going with Mitch Alvin's own voice telling about his beloved daughter in Finding Chica. When Mitch Album was in South Africa last year promoting The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, I spoke to him about a book that had not yet been published but that was very close to his heart Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and The Making of a Family. Mitch. Thanks. I'm glad to be able to talk about this book. The title is Chica, that's her name, and then the subtitle is A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family, and that pretty much sums up the breadth of the story. How did she come into your life? So I have an orphanage that I operate in Haiti. I got involved with it right after the earthquake of 2010, so we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that. I'm there every month. I admit the children, you know, I administer the place, I oversee it, we have a school there, it's, it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful place. And uh, Chica was one of our 47 children. She came to us when she was three years old. She was born three days before the earthquake. Um, on the third day of her life, she was inside with her mother, lying on her mother's chest, and the house literally collapsed around them like a, a walnut that opened up. She was spared, her mother was spared. But her mother died a few years later giving birth to her brother, and the father kind of was out of the picture, and so she was brought to us. She was loud. She was bossy. She was funny. She always had her hand on her hip, wagging her fingers at the other kids, and she was smaller than all the other kids. But at five years old, her face began to droop, and um, she started walking funny. And, of course, in Haiti, medical care is very limited, and uh, they said she needed eye drops, (laughs) which I don't know how that happened. Eventually, an MRI was taken, and the report was, we don't know what this is, but there's something in her brain, and nobody in Haiti is going to be able to help her. So we brought her to America, thinking that, well, okay, there's something there, and there was a tumor there, but maybe they could just take it out, and she could go resume her life. And when they operated on her, they found that it was a stage 4 cancerous tumor called DIPG. Only 300 children in the country get it every year. And it is absolutely fatal. Uh, There's a 0% survival. And they told us that she would probably be gone in four months, and we should just take her back to Haiti and let her die in her home country. But because I knew how feisty she was, and she was feisty, I said, no, this kid's a fighter, and if she's going to fight, we're going to fight. And that began a uh, two-year-long battle that she fought bravely and gamely, and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure and as a result we became a family my wife and I didn't have any children of our own so suddenly we had this loud brash five-year-old who was butchering the English language every minute (laughs) and um, she became our daughter and I guess we became a mother and father to her not her natural mother and father but figures and it was a wonderful heartbreaking sweet funny experience uh, and that's the book your grief is both personal and yet public how do you manage this process? It's Well, because I'm proud of her, and I'm proud of it. And um, the conceit of the book, uh, the way that I decided to do it, because, you know, they, I was warned 
well, you don't want to write about this subject. In fact, my publishers really didn't want me to write about it at all, and they certainly didn't want me to write about it right after it happened. And they said, you're too close to it, you're too emotional. And then as I dug deeper, I found out, well, people don't like to read books about children who die. You know? And I said, well, why not? You know, I wrote Tuesdays with Maury. It was a book about an old man who died, and a lot of people read that. Yes, but it's different for children. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It depends on how you approach it. So what I decided to do in this book was take the horror out of it right off the first page. And the book begins with me sitting in my office, and Chica comes back to visit me. Uh, And she sits on my office floor, and she says, when are you going to start writing about me? And I said, oh, I don't know. They tell me I'm not supposed to. And she says, well, I want you to write about me. And and she bosses me to basically says, you know, write about me and maybe I can stay here with you, you know. And so right on the very first page, you find out that she died. And you find out that she came back. And and she does come back to me in dreams and little times when I'm working and talk to me. And so she's visiting with me the whole time. And the whole book is told to her in second person. And it's about her life. It's about her life. But it's also, it's more than about just her life. It's about what you learn from parenthood, no matter when it hits you. And that you can make a family in a thousand different ways. She could not have been more different than me and my wife. She didn't look like us. She didn't talk like us. She didn't come from us. She wasn't from our country. She couldn't even speak the same language languages when she came up but yet we were absolutely a family and the love that that a child has for parents and parents have for a child doesn't need to look like anything and especially when you're trying to save a child's life so every minute she was with us every minute she never went to school she never went you know off uh, on to summer camp she was with us every minute and it was an intense but really beautiful thing and so at one point in the book she says to me uh Uh, I I make some comment that I learned a lot of lessons from her. And she says, well, I'm not your teacher. And that's how she would talk. And And I said, yes, but I learned. She said, well, write them down. And so the book becomes these like seven, one for each year of her life. She lived till she was seven. Seven lessons that I learned from her about life. And hopefully that people who read it will also find it's kind of universal with their kids. And he's speaking like a proud father. I was proud. Uh, I was proud of her. Um, you know, she said to me once when she, you know, she slowly lost the lots of abilities. She couldn't see out of her uh, left eye, and, and she couldn't walk very well, and pretty soon she couldn't walk at all, and I would have to carry her from place to place. So one time when uh, we were sitting coloring, and I looked at my watch, I realized I was late, and I said, oh, Chica, I got to go. I, I, and she said, no, no, stay here and color. And I said, no, I, Chica, it's my job. She said, well, uh, she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me, you know, (laughs) and I always thought about that sentence and I said, you know, she made it like a joke, but she was right. Your job is to carry your children and no matter what their burdens are. And uh, and that was my job. It's the best job I ever had. So I'm proud of the job. I'm proud of her and I'm happy to share the story. I think most people who read it will will laugh more than they cry because she's really funny. And there were lots of things. And even no matter what, um, I mean. For example, she used to ask, you know, whenever she was sad, I would say, Chica, did I tell you how much I love you today? And she said, no. And I would open my arms. I would say, this much. Well, after a while, I couldn't get my arms. So then I started to hook them around the back, you know. So then I go, this much. And she would laugh and she wouldn't be better. Well, towards the end of her life, when she only had like a few months left, she had a little bear. And so she held up the bear. She was going to bed. And I said, are you Chica's bear? And she nodded her head. And I said, well, uh, will you, I'm going to tell you a secret, but don't tell Chica. And she said, she held the bear up. She said, I have to tell Chica. I'm Chica's bear. I have to tell her everything. I said, well, don't tell her how much I love her. And she said, she already knows. I said, well, how does she know? And she took the bear's arms and she bent them back behind her back, you know. And uh, I think anybody who has children... Um, you know, can appreciate that kind of stuff, you know. When when you see that the love that you've put into a child is coming back to you, that's pretty special. Thank you for sharing that with us. My all pleasure. The best. Thanks. Take care. Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family by Mitch Album is now available in South Africa. And for your chance to win one of three copies of Finding Chica, send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram, or SMS with the keyword book choice. Your full name and answer to this question. Was Chica born in Haiti or Swaziland? Our SMS line is 39792. Standard rates apply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 
061-799-1013. So remember to send the keyword book choice, your full name in the answer, via SMS or Telegram or WhatsApp. One entry per person and the competition closes at quarter to one. Penny Lorimer, you are on the edge of your seat with When the Dead Come Calling by Helen Sedgwick and Our Fathers by Rebecca Waite. When the Dead Come Calling by Helen Sedgwick is introduced as the first of the Burrowhead Mysteries, and mysterious it is with its mix of crime and the occult. It starts off in a cave under the cliffs in Burrowhead, which does actually seem to be a real holiday village in Scotland, I looked it up on Google, and one immediately gets the sense that whatever lies within this cave provides a key to past and present horrors. In Chapter 2, a local psychotherapist is found murdered in the village playground, and Detective Inspector Georgie Strachan and her team must investigate. Georgie is assisted by local-born junior officer Trish, and also by D.S. Fraser, an outsider sent in to help. Soon a second murder takes place, which may or may not be connected to the first. There's also a brutal attack on a local Sri Lankan shop owner. Although the villagers are a close-knit crew, Burrowhead is no cosy hamlet. Besides the hints of the paranormal, the author's descriptions of it range through poor weather and scary, shrieking seagulls to disaffected youth, substandard housing and, of course, the murders and their possible racist and or homophobic undertones. Georgie herself, though married to a Scot, has an Albanian mother and this makes her mixed race and also a possible target. As Georgie investigates, her unemployed and depressed husband follows his obsession with the ancient prehistory of the area and some related inexplicable experiences which seem to wind themselves around the crimes his wife is probing. The village seems blighted by one particularly horrifying historical incident and this is central to the story in an underlying way, although Georgie seems determined to resist the possibility of anything not of this world. Georgie is also beginning to doubt her relationship with her husband, which adds another dimension to this tale. I enjoyed this book, but I must admit that I generally prefer my police procedurals more straightforward. This one had a bit too much mystical stuff for my taste. But it must be said that Helen Sedgwick is an experienced and award-winning author with an obvious facility for language, and one who manages to intertwine the realistic and the uncanny together in a reasonably believable way. I'll be interested to read the next Burrowhead Mystery to see how the series develops and whether it might be possible for me to become more of a fan. If you like a bit of horror mixed in with your crime, this one may be for you. In Our Fathers by Rebecca Waite, the only survivor of a family murder returns to his childhood home on a small, remote and rather relentlessly bleak island off the coast of Scotland. Here, 20 years ago, John Baird, a well-respected and apparently charming man, one day massacred his wife, his daughter, one of his sons, and then killed himself, leaving only his less favoured son, Tommy, alive. The killer's brother, Malcolm, still lives on the island, and it is on his doorstep that Tommy turns up 20 years later, having failed, since the murders, to move beyond the trauma and his own guilt, and unable to progress with his education, employment or romantic relationships. The author calmly, carefully, and without sensationalism, investigates the psychology of the killer, his brother and their father before them, painting a picture of patriarchal and unpredictable men and their slow and corrosive abuse of their wives, as Tommy, who escaped, battles to come to terms with his appalling family tragedy. This is a vivid and realistic story that reflects accurately how women are carefully lured into relationships by weak and insecure men, men who, it seems, are only able to build their own sense of power and self-worth by victimising, devaluing and betraying others, and most especially those who love them. It was also a stark reminder that abuse does not have to be physical or obvious to inflict long-term damage on its victims. I found this an especially relevant, given the abuse pandemic which surrounds us, and a thoroughly worthwhile read. I reviewed When the Dead Come Calling by Helen Sedgwick and Our Fathers by Rebecca Waite.
What a lovely tune on a Monday afternoon on Fine Music Radio. Music there by L- Leroy Anderson, and there it was performed by our very own late Mike Klotz. He was a saxophonist, and he did it beautifully. Music of Leroy and Anderson, and yes, it's called Forgetting Dreams. It was released back in 1955. It was performed by Leroy, firstly. Mm, very nice tune. So, yeah, he composed it and he performed it. It's 17 minutes after 12 here on Fine Music Radio. Good afternoon to you. It's Music Smarkhead up behind the mic with Vanessa. Vanessa, what do we have on uh, next? Thank you for that. And, yes, it is really a beautiful piece of music. And talking about things beautiful and lovely, we're crossing yeah. to John Hanks, who, in keeping with his love of the natural world, he flitted around Steve Whittle's field guide to butterflies of South Africa. Sounds good. Let's hear it. If anyone listening to this program needs reminding that we are remarkably privileged to live in a country that has an extraordinary celebration of diversity of fauna and flora, then I urge you to buy a copy of the second fully revised edition of Steve Woodall's Field Guides to the Butterflies of South Africa. This is a superb production, with exceptional colour photographs of the 671 species of butterflies recorded in South Africa. A good field guide should be easy to use and as comprehensive as possible, and this production is one of the best of its kind. The photographs show male and female butterflies of each species where the sexes differ, and a big plus is the inclusion where it's been possible of photographs of both upper and undersides. The account of each species is easy to follow, with essential information on size, key identification features, distribution and habitat, and larval food. With some 20,000 species of butterflies worldwide, and with the greatest number of these in tropical regions, South Africa's diverse vegetation types have provided an exception for the number of butterflies we have here, and have given us the benefit of a large number of endemics found nowhere else in the world. Some of these have extremely restricted distributions, such as the Golden Gate Brown Butterfly, recorded only from the sandstone buttresses in the Golden Gate Highlands National Park, in complete contrast to the easily recognised Painted Lady, which occurs throughout South Africa. In extreme cases, the entire world population of a species is permanently confined to a range the size of a tennis court, Given the large number of South African butterflies with these very restricted ranges, it's quite possible that species have become extinct before they become recognised and recorded. The book also has a very good introductory text on butterfly biology, noting the significance and importance of the choice of larval food, which in the vast majority is restricted to plant matter and in some cases restricted to a single plant species, which in turn limits the range of the butterfly. Unlike mammals, a butterfly's time as an adult is usually short compared to its total life cycle, making it essential for adults to have only one purpose in life, namely to reproduce, a characteristic summarised by Steve Woodall when he referred to butterflies as being essentially sex machines. Anyone from England might be surprised to hear that the well-known cabbage white from that part of the world is South Africa's only invasive alien species of butterfly. It was first seen near Cape Town in 1994 and has spread very rapidly north and east since then. It probably got here through cabbage white eggs or caterpillars introduced by accident on food plants such as a cabbage or possibly someone deliberately smuggled eggs or larvae into the country, reared them on cabbage in their own garden from where they spread into surrounding areas. From the damage it does to cabbage and Brussels sprouts as well as oilseed grape, it is not a welcome addition to the amazing diversity of butterflies described in Steve Woodhull's excellent field guide. This new publication has my strongest possible recommendation. The title again, Field Guides to Butterflies of South Africa. It's the second revised edition. It's written by Steve Woodhull, published in 2020 by Straight Nature in Cape Town, and it sells for 390 rand. 
Fascinating. Thank you, John. Now, Mitch Albom's latest book we've been talking about today is called Finding Chica. Chica was born in Haiti three days before the devastating earthquake in 2010. Now, for your chance to win one of three copies of Finding Chica, send FMR, WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword book choice. Your full name and answer to this question, was Chica born in Haiti or Swaziland? Our SMS line is 39792, standard rate supply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 061-799-1013. I'll say that again, 061-799-1013. The competition closes at quarter to one. I didn't know that Dave Kruger was such a singer, Vanessa. Talented man. I, I have mean, no Dave, idea. Dave Kruger, he's a music teacher. Also, he's a presenter here at FMR. And he did this version of Summertime. Absolutely amazing, huh? Very nice. And, and oh, man, music by the Gershwin Brothers, they're sounding amazing. Uh, it's one of the most popular jazz album, um, Standard. Did you know that? I didn't, but I did know that we were singing along. Yes, 25 recordings of this tune. That's incredible. Yes. And ah. I'm not surprised. Mm, I'm it's, not a surprised. it's a lovely tune. Where else can you hear such on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM? Thank you for choosing us. Vanessa, what's going on? Well, what's going on is Beryl Eichenberger enjoyed Gail Shimmer's Two Months as well as The Water and the Wine by Tamar Hodes. Now, both authors, authors will feature at the Jewish Literary Festival on the 15th of March. With Jewish Literary Festival coming up on March the 15th, I thought I would review two of the authors who will be talking about their books. Two Months is Gail Schimmel's fifth novel, and this time she dips very successfully into the genre of psychological thriller. 
Having read Gail's previous four books, all unputdownable and perfect book club reads, I was curious to see how she moved into thriller genre, but of course she handles it with aplomb, providing the tension and build-up that turns every page. Gail has woven the sinister and evil with precision, opening the door into the scourge of bullying and a story of a life rebuilt. From the moment you start reading it until the unpredictable end, this is a story that grips and won't let go. What would you do if you woke up one April morning and could not remember what had happened over the last two months? No one, not even your husband, can fill you in. Or won't is the bigger question, and what is he hiding? Primary school teacher Erica and her husband Kenneth have a good life. Erica is doing the job she loves. She is married to a man who loves her, and the future looks bright until that morning when she wakes up and finds that the last two months are a complete void. Is this her brain reacting to an unpleasant experience? It's happened before, something that Erica is unaware of. And what could have derailed her life now? After her horrific experiences at high school as the object of vicious bullying, Erica has rebuilt her life. Her only obvious flaw is that she is fat, which, as we know, can be the perfect launch pad for toxic teenage girls. Their reign of terror had encompassed Erica's whole young life, her first boyfriend, her family, a car accident and an almost tragedy. But that was then. Today she is confident and while she doesn't have a huge circle of friends, after her experience at school she is wary of getting too close to people, though she has a loyal. How do you recover from bullying? Repression is a good tool and Erica doesn't think too much about that time. Instead, she embraces her adult life and the good fortune she has encountered. She is a strong, kind, happy person who is abundant rather than fat, adored by the loving Kenneth. Then one day she is taken aback when her best friend from school, Caitlin, contacts her after years of silence. Agreeing to meet for coffee, the past seems to dissolve. But there is a niggle of doubt which the kind Erica sweeps away and then her carefully rebuilt world slowly starts to disintegrate, piece by piece. Schimmel moves across the chapters using Erica's voice and the third person, unfolding a story of jealousy, repression and outright denial until its shocking climax. She does this with empathy and astuteness. Schimmel has the capacity to evoke strong feelings from her readers with her all-seeing pen and sharp wit. You'll laugh and cry and inevitably gasp with horror as Schimmel unpacks a modern story that shows how human manipulation and using it in cyberspace can create illusions that have drastic consequences. For a magical trip back into the 1960s and the hedonistic lifestyle enjoyed by many artists and writers, then this next biographical novel will delight. The Water and the Wine by Tamar Hodes is a fictional account of her family's life on the Greek island of Hydra, during the 60s and just before a military junta takes over. Delving into the unrealistic lifestyle enjoyed by the artist colony that thrived there, Hodes presents it with sensitivity and humour. When the Silver family, parents Jack and Frieda with children Esther, the young Tamar, and Gideon move to the Greek island of Hydra, it is with the intention of repairing their marriage and serious writing. What they find is a sensuous and hypnotic group headed by the Australian writers George Johnston and Charmian Clift, who warmly welcome them. Into this mix comes the young, then unknown Leonard Cohen, who meets the beautiful Marianne. Remember the song, So Long Marianne? Wife to a very volatile and philandering Axel Jensen. It is love at first sight and a passionate affair engulfs them. Hodes paints Cohen as a gentleman, but as his fame grows, he becomes more withdrawn into the world of drink and drugs, leaving Marianne often lonely and conflicted. As we follow their story, so, in parallel, do we learn that George is egocentric and a bully, Charmian is a drunk, desperate to get some of the limelight, as Jack and Frida drift more and more apart, Frida finds her love of painting again, and a painting love across the religious divide. For a time, people forget who they are and where they came from, living a life that is in parenthesis. The children of the couples are not exempt, exposed as they are to adult foibles and secrets, which inevitably would shape their lives. 
drugs, affairs, drinking, debating and massive creativity are part of this group's raison d'etre and Hodes writes with great tenderness of the life and stories that unfold as politics intrude and the island life is destined to change. I so enjoyed this book and its lively intensity. I was taken back to the swinging 60s and the gravelly voice of Cohen. I could even hear him on the pages. Hodes has captured the huge egos of the talenteds, their agonies in their artistry, while also the gentleness of burgeoning but doomed love affairs. The local characters are an important part of the narrative and form a colourful backdrop to this immensely accessible novel. Walk the island with her and smell the perfume, sense the seasons and taste the food. With broad brushstrokes, she paints a picture of a life long gone, a sensual existence where celebrities such as Onassis and Jackie Kennedy would moor their yacht, entertain lavishly and become part of the artist's colony for a short while. A well-crafted novel that is as easy to read as listening to a Leonard Cohen album. Thank you, Beryl, to Fascinating Stories. For your chance to win another fascinating book, in fact, we're giving away three copies of this book, Finding Chica. Send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword book choice, your full name and answer to this question. Was Chica born in Haiti or Swaziland? Our SMS line is 39792, standard rate supply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 061-799-1013. Now, the competition closes at quarter to one, so this is your last chance to enter.
what a lovely voice. It's the voice of Beverly Scott Brown teaming up there with the Glenn Miller Orchestra directed by John Cooper. I know why. Sounding amazing. If you are having lunch, I'm sure your lunch is going down very well this time around, huh? Indeed. And I know why, and so does Mzu know why. We had cupcakes in our office just mm. before book choice today because mm. it was his birthday yesterday. Happy yeah. birthday. Thank you, thank you, V. <laughs> thank you so much. It was lovely. Much to celebrate. Yeah. Philip Todras spoke to the hugely interesting artist and author Roger Ballin about his latest publication, The World According to Roger Ballin, by Roger Ballin and Colin Rhodes. The World According to Roger Ballin, published by Jonathan Ball Publishers, intrigues and amazes as Roger Ballin's work always does for me. I'm just going to read a bit of the blurb. Throughout his career, Roger Ballin has pursued a singular artistic goal to give expression to the human psyche, to explore visually the hidden forces that shape who we are. The question I really have for you today, Roger, is... Since your exhibition, The Hulson Pier, in Paris, which is devoted to outsider art and unusual forms of creativity, I see quite a distinct shift in focus, pun intended, in the work that you're currently doing. Is that a fair comment? Would you like to? Uh, look, um, the work it, it keeps uh, building on top of uh, on each other, so there's a layer on layer on layer. I always use a geological uh, metaphor in geology. One is the um, rocks can be seen as layer on layer and layer a, a proliferation of, of time going by but sometimes things happen and you get a fault and all of a sudden the layers are disrupted and you end up on a higher or lower side zone here so in a way um, the color work that you see here in the book there's some examples of the, of the color work and some of the installations are a product of layering and a product of jumps and faults I think the jumps are always upwards as far as I'm concerned. But tell us a little about the process. Before, you seem to set up the image and then take that image. Now you seem to be playing a lot with maybe post the photograph, putting together images and working different ways. Is that one of the things that well, has happened? Well, uh, look, I don't use Photoshop to make the pictures, so everything that you see in the photographs was there and, and taken through the camera that wasn't uh, manipulated uh, through Photoshop. So I think uh, what's probably happened more than anything else, uh, beginning about 2002 or three, portraiture disappeared from the photograph. So you know, for a long time in South Africa, I was known for my uh, portraiture. Then beginning about 2002 or 2003, uh, the drawings started to come into the work. The pictures started to have a, uh, a sense of an installation. Animals became uh, prevalent. And uh, what could be referred to or is referred to in my aesthetic started to manifest itself. It sort of started to have something to do with theater of the absurd, theater of the balanesque, something strange, something enigmatic that didn't necessarily have any cultural roots. There's not, you don't see any cultural roots in these uh, photographs of the art. It's all psychologically based. So you're looking into the mind. We also see yeah, the, the mind of... Roger Ballin. I like the word Ballinesque, which you did introduce in your previous. So the, the, you see, uh, you see, you see the mind of Roger Ballin. But if you see the work, if the ro work is resonating, you see your own mind. Your own mind is ringing. It's something there. And then if you have the instinct, or you have the need, or you have the desire or inclination, then you may want to figure out why your mind is ringing after the, it sees these pictures. You are, that's you're quite important. You're That's certainly connecting to a particular kind of audience. Now, no, no, you're not connecting to audience. You see, the thing is, is what's important in the work, that there's an archetypal element to it. So I always tell people, one of the best things that happens to me in South Africa sometimes is when I take the pictures out of South Africa and go through security, and the pictures are in a box. And a lot of times the people at security open the boxes and are not sure what's in it, and those pictures really ring in their head. And they don't even know they're looking at photographs. Well, that's an extraordinary response, and I think that's hopefully what you often get in terms of people resonating with the work. Well, also, just I uh, see there is more work in collaboration with Margaret Rousseau, who you've been working with for many years. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No, uh, Marguerite's been working for me for 13 years. Uh, she's my artistic uh, director, and uh, she's a very... Um, 
creative, uh, very talented, and uh, very um, well. It's been a real uh, team, and on a lot of these uh, projects, she's contributed to the creation of the of the work, and she's also very involved in um, in the post production of the work. Not that we change the essence of the work, but you know, she might make it more bright or less bright or get rid of some of the marks or this sort of thing. But so she has a. If anybody understands what I'm doing, is it's it's Marguerite. So, if you want to um, find out all the secrets of Roger Bellin, find Marguerite. But I'm sure it won't be cheap. Well, as they say, the work is about finding a more primal means of artistic expression. If that's what you're after, I really would recommend that you get the world according to Roger Bellin and increase the way you look at the world in many, many, very many ways. And I have to admit, I'm not an objective interviewer. I'm absolutely mad about the work produced by Roger Bellin, an internationally recognized photographer. And, Philip, we were mad about that interview. Thank you. Lines are now closed for our competition entry, so listen for your name at the end of the show if you entered, and there will be three very happy listeners, I'm sure. said Miss Jones You're a girl who understands I'm a man who must be free And all at once I lost my breath All at once was scared to death All at once I owned the earth and sky Earth and sky music composed by Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart wrote the lyrics with this lovely tune Have You Met Have You Met Miss Jones? This was done by an a cappella group track five sounding amazing on Fine Music Radio. It's quarter to twelve, Vanessa. What do we have on next? Well have you met Leslie Beak? Not quite. <laughs> but she does bring us two preteen reads that tickled her fancy. The Girl Who Stole an Elephant by Nizrana Farouk and The Unteachables by Gordon Corman. It's a bit of a relief to subside into reading books for early and pre-teens, where the general angst and anger is substantially less, and relationships of the steamier sort have yet to raise their inquiring gaze. But make no mistake, life in the Raws is still going on down there, just with a different focus. This is a challenging age group to write for, well, aren't they all? Not least because this is the group who are in danger of stopping reading altogether if we don't put books in front of them, books that genuinely hold their interest. And their interests are wide, their observation acute, and their need for story almost desperate. The Girl Who Stole an Elephant by Nizrana Farouk 
intrigued me from the beginning. Set in exotic Sri Lanka in an earlier time, not specified, but not now, anything seems possible. Chaya reminds me a bit of Philip Pullman's Lyra, fierce and brave, not given to introspective thinking through of any given situation in advance of taking action. During the day, she is an ordinary enough schoolgirl. At night, when she sees the need to help somebody, she turns into a clever thief, but only for somebody in trouble. When a daring theft is uncovered and Chaya owns up immediately, her confession is discounted out of hand by the cruel general in charge of the king's soldiers. Not possible. A mere girl could not have managed to steal the queen's jewels. So they arrest Chaya's friend Neil instead, and he freely admits to the crime to save Chaya. This is a lovely beginning for an exciting plot. Naturally, Chaya has to rescue Neil. Naturally, they escape by stealing the king's state elephant, and, of course, when Noor, the pampered daughter of a rich merchant, gets into the story, they take her with them. The rest of the story is pure adventure and fun as they meet up with the inept king's exiled sister, bandits, revolutionary, manage the terrors of the jungle in spite of Noor's screams, and wind the whole drama up to a delightfully neat ending. I enjoyed the, this book, and your 8- to 11-year-old readers will too. The Unteachables by Gordon Corman is a different kettle of words altogether. Billed on the front cover as a number one New York Times best-selling author, Corman is clearly popular with his middle school audience, although I suspect this might not be his best book. 27 million copies of his over 80 other books have been sold, which indicates quite a following. But once I had eased into the plot of The Unteachables, I found it full of ideas. There are some thoughtful perceptions of children who might or might not have a need for special kinds of education, and a teacher in crisis as his date for voluntary retirement comes closer. I don't think I will buy this book for the children I work with. It's a bit slow of pace, and there are long sections where nothing much seems to be happening, but I will certainly be looking out for the other books by this prolific author. I reviewed The Girl Who Stole an Elephant by Nizrana Farouk, published by Nosy Crow in 2020, and The Unteachables by Gordon Corman, published by HarperCollins, also in 2020.
A lovely tune. It's called Kitten on the Keys, played by JP Human on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. Good afternoon to you. Uh, that was beautiful. And it also brings us to the end of this month's book choice. But before we get to the end of the program, we have our three winners to announce. The answer to the question, was Chica born in Haiti or Swaziland, is of course Haiti. The winners are Sandra Van Osh, Tess Van Royen and Mark Andre Daniels. You'll each receive a beautiful copy of the book Finding Chica by Mitch Album, and we'll contact you shortly to arrange delivery. Now, thank you as always to Rick Everett for the playlist, the wonderful Mzuma Keta for production, editor Cindy Morris, who will be back next month for compiling the show, and a shout out to our most loyal, most fabulous listener, the founder of Book Choice, Gory Bose Taylor. Matinee is up next with Otto van der Volt after the news. Till then, it's goodbye from us. Happy reading. Ciao, ciao. FMR.